Well, good evening, everybody. Thanks for being here. Tonight we're talking about what really matters. And I invite you to turn in a Bible that you brought that's in front of you, or you can swipe if you have it on your phone, right to the middle in Isaiah. Isaiah is a big book in the middle of the Bible. It's part of the Old Testament as we know it, and we're going to be toward the end of that book in chapter 58. But before we look at Isaiah, and before we close, clothes, close with an invitation to practice, to really practice some stuff, first I want to talk to you about a new season that's on the horizon. Some of you say, dude, it's February, what are you talking about? Well, I'm talking about a church calendar season. Some of you may not be aware because you may not have grown up in a Catholic church or an Anglican church or a Lutheran or Methodist church, but there's actually a church calendar that millions of Christians follow. And this, I only now realized, is missing one season, but just because it's up here and because we're entering in a new season, I want to give you first an idea of where we're at in the church calendar and where we're headed. Then we'll look at Isaiah 58. Then I'll give you some invitations to practice something in this season. This week begins the season of Lent, that purple season there on your screen. Lent is the season that precedes Easter, and it's a season that prepares us for Easter. But before I talk about Lent, we got to back up because the church calendar starts at the end of our calendar year. Do you see that purple sliver that says Advent? Advent is the church's new year. It begins the church calendar, and the church calendar tells the story of Jesus. So the story of Jesus begins by waiting for Jesus. Advent is a word that means arrival. So the season that begins in November or December is a season where we wait for Jesus. Then Christmas. Christmas we celebrate what? You know this? The birth of Jesus. Even if you've never been in church. Hey, isn't Christmas the thing about Jesus being born in a manger? Yes. So Advent waits for Jesus. Christmas celebrates Jesus' birth, and then you may not know, it's missing here, I picked like the worst picture. I just threw this up there, and I was like, oh, cool, we're missing lots now. You know a pastor's really prepared when he's looking at the screen and like, oh, this is way wrong. <laughs> There's a season after Christmas called Epiphany, and maybe it doesn't get a sliver there because it's short, but Epiphany celebrates the light of Jesus that the wise men saw and that is shining forth in the world. So we wait for Jesus. Jesus is born. Then his light is revealed to the world. That's epiphany. And then there's Lent, which we'll talk about in a moment. And you all see that sliver there. That's a really weird word. Can you read it? It's a triduum. That's a weird word. That's a fancy church word for the three days of Easter. Good Friday, which celebrates Jesus' death, celebrates, reflects on Jesus' death. Saturday, when Jesus was buried, it's a quiet and mournful day. And then, of course, 
Easter Sunday. Those three days, the Triduum. Easter tells the story of Jesus' resurrection. The calendar is still telling the story of Jesus. Then we have Easter. That's a long season that is walking and celebrating in the kingdom come, the new creation. And then guess what? Our picture is missing another dadgum season. It's Pentecost. Pentecost celebrates the continuation of Jesus' work through the Holy Spirit and the church. So we've got waiting for Jesus, the birth of Jesus, the light of Jesus. Then we've got the death and resurrection of Jesus. Then the church working in Jesus' name. And then dig this. The longest season is called ordinary time. Ordinary time reflects on Jesus' teaching. Because like it or not, is most of our life just full throttle, awesome Christmas every day, Easter every day? Or is most of our life ordinary? You do. I bet you do. I know you do, my man. But it ain't. There's something about the church calendar that roots us, teaches us, orients us in the story of Jesus. So, don't look at my terrible picture But Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, all these things. All of these seasons tell the story about Jesus. And they're about Jesus, except one. Lent. Lent is for the church. All of these other seasons are about Jesus. Lent is for the church. Lent is a season for the church to refocus our life around Jesus' life. Lent is a season to refocus not just on our New Year's resolutions that we've sloughed off, but a chance to refocus on the kinds of habits and hang-ups that seem to get stuck to our life with God and others. Lent is a chance to refocus on what really matters when we go about our life. Lent slaps some cold water on us, slaps us across the face and says, wake up, get back on track for what really matters. All the other seasons are about Jesus. Lent is the only season for us and about us and our life with him. Lent has three tools that I'll talk about at the end of our message today. Three classic tools that Jesus talked about and Jason read about. Giving, praying, and fasting. These are the tools that have been handed down to us who follow Jesus to get us back into shape, to refocus off of our own hurts and hang-ups and habits When we let our appetites and desires drive our life, Lent says, hey, would you give to somebody beyond your own self? Lent says, hey, will you pray and talk to somebody beyond yourself? Will you look beyond yourself to God in prayer for his strength? And then when our appetites cause us to just Binge eat, I don't know, eight tacos at Jack in the Box at 10 o'clock at night like someone I know maybe who would remain anonymous myself. It causes us to pause and think about what's really feeding us in our soul. 
to give, pray, and fast are the tools that Jesus has handed us, that the church invites us to help us get our focus back on what really matters. That's why Lent is a season for the church. But listen, the problem with tools, if you've ever handed a kid a power saw, is they can be misused. Amen, Robert? Have you seen me misuse a tool or two in my life? Just because we have them doesn't mean we know how to use them and use them well. How many religious people take religious tools and do great damage on their own souls and in the lives of others? These tools don't naturally cause us to refocus. We have to really keep Jesus at the center of our attention. So that's why when Jason read, when you give, don't sound the trumpet and say, look at me, how awesome. You say no. You do it quietly because God sees and there's something about it that can form you. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites that get on a mic and say, oh, blessed be God and our Father, and you say all these wonderful things. He says, no, no, no. Their reward is that people say, look how spiritual that guy is, but they are misusing that tool. When you pray, go and put your whole life before God. He hears you. He sees you. When you fast, don't go to lunch, and when you're in the line at Luby's, somebody says, you want the cheeseburger steak, you don't say, no, I'm fasting. And the cheeseburger steak is gross and I'll throw up. No, no, no. You splash some water on your face, put that lipstick on, and you say, everything's perfectly normal, but no thanks. You don't do it for the show. You do it because we need to refocus on what really matters. Those are the three tools we'll talk about at the end of our time again. But for now, I want you to know that the misuse of tools has been going on for generations. Like we see with God's people, Israel, in the book of Isaiah. I want to read and walk through this passage. And I want to talk about how a life that misuses these tools can do great damage in our world. And I want us to end this time entering into the season of Lent. And maybe you've never done Lent before, and maybe you think that it's just for those Catholics or just for those others. I want you to open your mind and open your heart to the possibility that these tools may be for you to form you. And perhaps you've been feeling in a funk. Perhaps you've been feeling stuck. Perhaps you've been feeling dry and weary and deserted. Maybe Jesus wants to give you these tools. But let's see how God wants us to use them in Isaiah chapter 58. Beginning in verse 1. He begins by saying, hey, let these folks know how badly they've misused these tools. Shout it aloud. Don't hold back, Isaiah. Raise your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob, that would be Israel, their sins. Now I'm listening. What's going on? Verse 2, here's what it is. Day after day, they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways. Who's talking here? God through Isaiah, as if they were a nation that does what is right 
and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Pause there. What's happening is Isaiah is saying, you guys want to know why your life is such a mess? Why your neighborhood is such a mess? Day after day, you come and make a big show of your worship and religion, and you seem eager to know what you want me. You, want, you seem eager to know what God wants, but you don't go out and live it. You've forsaken my way. And so when you ask me for something and seem eager for me to come near, no wonder your life is such a mess. You're just playing religion. Verse 3. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed, God? Pause. God, we put our spiritual quarter into the cosmic vending machine. We went to church. We read our Bible. We did a little something at the clothes closet. So it's your turn to give me what I want. And the problem you find for generations of people following close to God is that he is no cosmic vending machine. He is bigger and more mysterious and more loving and more holy and strange than we give him credit for. And what he's longing for is a relationship where we're leaning in and listening, not just pumping quarters and expecting blessings to come out the other side. So we continue. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and you exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends with quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. In other words, you guys look and act like a church, but you're biting each other in the back and you're exploiting those that look to you for help. So you cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Let's continue. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves and check a religious box? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Pause there. Millions of Christians this Wednesday will go to some churches and they'll get an ash placed on their forehead. In our church, we'll release a video that you can check out uh, on our Facebook page or ideally, you can check out with others in a neighborhood group this Wednesday night, Ash Wednesday. And so many people will go and they'll get ashes. And I think their heart is in a right place because they feel like they're doing a good religious thing. But the problem is, ashes on a forehead are less important than a heart that's oriented to God. To say, I come in need. I come uh, broken. I come looking to you. An ash on the forehead is 18 inches from what matters most. The answer is not, don't go get an ash. The answer is, listen closely, because God doesn't want our super spiritual displays of holiness. He wants our hearts. And not only that, what we're about to see, 
He wants our insides, our heart, to match our actions. It means nothing to cry out and say, God, we love you, and then go out and bite your neighbor in the back and oppress those who are on the margins. So this is when God finally says, here's what matters most. Here's what I'm looking for. You can put your religious masks and actions away. This is what I'm looking for. Verse 6. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? Some Bible translations translate this as, and not to share your home with the homeless poor. And when you see the naked, to clothe them. And not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Some of y'all think that this is talking about our biological family because that's a plain reading there. But understand that what's really happening there is whenever you see an other, that is brother. You are a family, a blessing, a people of God, and you are turning your back on your brother and sister. You're turning your back on the ones that need you the most. That's the kind of fast he's looking for. Verse 8. If you do this, then your light will break forth like the dawn. And your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you. And the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard following close behind. Then you'll call and the Lord will answer. Because why? You're actually looking to me. Not to go play religion. You'll cry for help and I'll say, here I am. If you do away with that yoke of oppression and the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. Why? The light will shine because you're living in connection to it. To do the religion and lose connection to God is to do great harm with the tools he's given in our world. I want to show you a picture as we talk just another moment about this and get back to those tools. You see that? Behind us is Nikol Rama. Raise your hand if you've been to the greatness of Nikol Rama. There's some Garland people in here, y'all. This popped up in my photos for you in my iPhone. And I wondered why until I realized, oh, it was a year ago this week. So I was looking at these photos and the girls were looking over my shoulder. I said, y'all remember this? They said, yes. And I said, do you remember when it was? And they said, it was around Valentine's Day last year. And I said, yeah, how do you remember that? They said, because it was an awesome surprise. Because we said, can we go to Nickel Rama on a random Thursday? And you said, yes. <laughs> I remembered because mommy had an important meeting and daddy had to get out the house. 
But they said, we also remember it because you said, let's get all the nickels. And we dug through the cars, we dug through their coin jars, and we got these big, heavy Ziploc bags, and we went to Nickelrama, and they said, and also it was awesome because, like, nobody else was in there. And so we take this picture, and we're reminiscing, and we thought, oh, what a sweet and happy time. And then I said, girls, you know what I remembered? And they said, what? And they said, they made an announcement because it was 30 minutes to close. And they said, get your tickets. Our ticket counter will be closing in 15 minutes. And all of a sudden, something came over both of your little precious faces. And it didn't look like this. I walked up to one of the games we had been playing and having fun with all night. And they said, don't put your nickel in there. We need tickets. And all of a sudden, something shifted. And I see these two little misers, greedy little gnomes go run around and play only the games that gave tickets. Literally, I'm not exaggerating. I wish I was like making it up for effect. They found one of the ticket things ajar. They asked me to pry it open and steal tickets. I'm not lying. And I said, we're going to go tell him this thing is open and these two little trolls want to clean you out. So we see this picture, and the girls are saying, oh, it was a lovely time. I'm sitting there saying, you were monsters. <laughs> and what's hilarious is today, they saw me sending this to Maria for the slides, and they said, aw, what are you going to talk about? We were talking about this the other day. I said, yep. I said, you want to know what I'm going to talk about? And I said, what was the most important thing about that time? They said, having fun together. I said, exactly. Let me ask you another question. Do you still have the bouncy ball, the airhead, and the parachute guy, and the airplane, and the ring, and all those things you just had to have and killed me over to go get at the ticket counter? They said, of course not, Daddy. And I said, okay, this is my illustration. <laughs> With the best intentions, what has happened in Isaiah 58 is a people that were surprised at the benevolence of God to bring them out of oppression. And then he says, you're blessed to go and set others free. And they said, yeah. And then the world comes and says, the ticket counter is closing in 15 minutes. And they say, oh, wait, maybe we can become the oppressors. Maybe we can start to collect more things and more money for ourselves." What happened with Israel is that God says, here's how we can go and live life as it's truly meant to be lived. Honor others. Love your neighbor. Don't commit adultery. Don't make a mess of your life by following after other gods. And don't covet and look to others for something that you don't have. Be happy with who you are. Be happy with whose you are and live this way toward life. And they said, yes, this is awesome. Let's go. It's Nicolrama, God. This is awesome. The ticket counter is about to close. And they said, actually, I've got a better idea. What's happening is even more insidious you have a people that have decided that their interests are more important than the vulnerable, and we want all the junk. Then you have a people 
that had God's way of life, and they said, I think we can do it better. And what happened is this. A cycle of empty religion, instead of a life connected to the source, to be formed for mission. Here's the difference. They stopped listening to God. They said, we don't want to do your way. We don't want to release others from debts like you told us. We would rather put a yoke of crippling debt so that we can get more tickets. They've missed what mattered most. And when they stop listening to God's way, but watch, they keep doing the religious rituals they liked. So they oppress and neglect the poor, but they get their Sunday best and go to the temple and they make a big show of their religious corporate fasts. What happens when you have a deep commitment to religious ritual, but your heart is far from God? You start to enter into a cycle where you forget what we're actually here to do. They go into the temple, and in verses 1 and 2, it says, they seem eager to meet me, but I think they'd rather just be seen. They seem like they're crying out to me, but I think they just want the tickets. So when they cry out to me, I'm not listening because in their eyes, it really doesn't matter if I engage with them or not. They're still not going to do what I say. Go love your neighbor. Nah. What happens when you have a deep commitment to religious ritual and your heart is far from God? You take the buzzsaw, this tool that God has given, and you don't realize you're killing yourself and your soul little by little by little. Formation for mission is what God is always after. I'll put it to you this way. When Jeremiah, who usually plays drums here, was playing at a church in South Dallas that he does on Sundays a lot, I would go down there with him because you want to really see Jeremiah get it, go and see him play gospel music in South Dallas. And so one of our uh, favorite pastors in the area, I know some of you guys know, Chris Simmons, is at this church and he's preaching. And I remember writing something down because the way he said it, it sounded super profound. And I was looking back through my notes and I found it a couple weeks ago. And he said this, your hallelujah doesn't mean anything without your do ya <laughs> And I go, yes, amen. And I wrote it down in my binder. And then like a couple weeks back, I looked at it and I said, what's a do ya Hallelujah works, and it rhymes, but like it would be just that. But I said, you know what? It still works, because I think you get the point. Their hallelujah don't mean nothing without their do-ya-luya. Now go say do-ya-luya five times fast, and if that's the only thing you remember, take it with you. 
God is talking through the prophet Isaiah and saying, your fasts and your empty ritual is not the main thing. You've forgotten what it looks like to do this together. When I ask you to give, it's not that you can put that in the cosmic vending machine and get back. No, no, no. You give simply because God gave to you and you recognize you're forgiven. You're loved. He woke you up this morning. He gave you breath and he gave you food. So when you have a whole banquet of food, you say, God gave me this, so therefore my heart is transformed to go and give to others. I have four coats, and so because God has so richly given me these coats, these three belong to the poor. I give because I recognize that the giver has blessed me immeasurably more than I can ask or imagine. I don't give so that God would give me more. I give because I have received, and God has transformed my heart. And the problem with our churches is when a pastor gets up here like I'm going to do in five minutes and say, would you consider giving your money? And you say, no way. It's because we have a disconnect. We have a disconnect and we've been discipled by a culture that says, get all the tickets and the bouncy balls matter more. And the stuff that you have matters more. And what happens without the connection to the source without the formation is we can go to church and have all the hallelujahs and we say, God, I give you my life, but I will never give you my stuff. God, I give you my whole life, but I will never write a check for $25. And there's a disconnect because we've made a disconnect of a hallelujah, a worship, and it hasn't penetrated our heart in such a way that says, maybe uh, my stuff is owning me if my fists are so closed that I can't give the way he's given to me. Formation for mission looks like we don't fast and pray to twist God's arm and get what we want. No, no, no. We fast and pray because it puts us in a position to be acted upon. We go and love the marginalized and the least and the lonely and the left out because we realize that God loves them and he's inviting partners to go and bring the good news that you don't have to earn love, you just have to open up to it. Which is why with what Jason read, we're not to neglect the practice of giving, praying, and fasting. Don't misread Isaiah 58 and say, oh, he doesn't care about any fasting. No, he's saying don't come and fast food if you're going to go and withhold food from your neighbor. That's a disconnect. Jesus will say, when you fast, make sure you're not doing it for an audience. The love of God, then, is working in you. This is what I'm trying to say. When the love of neighbor is flowing out of you. Empty religion says I better go to church. Or God's going to punish me. Let me go earn what God has already given. Love, forgiveness, an opportunity to live life with him. Here's some good news for you. You don't fast, give, and pray so that God will love you. You give, fast, and pray because that love has transformed your heart little by little so that you can't help but go and work in such a way that leads to your transformation and our neighbors flourishing. You don't get what has already been given. 
God loves you immeasurably more than you could ever ask or imagine. He stretched out his arms of love upon the cross and says, Father, forgive them. You are invited into his embrace. You just have to open up to it. It's not something you earn. It's a gift that you receive. And religion says, keep earning what's already been given. That is a lie. And that's misusing the tools that God has given. This is why Jesus will say later, when you give, when you fast, when you pray. But before we get there, you need to understand that he was making an assumption that this is part of how God transforms you. Can we go back to that slide before? Because I want to point out something more before we wind down. I want you to look, if you still have your Bible open, at verse 6. He talks about the fruit of empty religion being a work of injustice. When the Bible uses that word injustice, it means that God's people, the people in power, have organized the world in such a way where the widows and orphans and foreigners do not have access to basic needs. Injustice in our neighborhood is that some people have all the clothes and others have no clothes. That's injustice. The injustice is that rents continue to raise and people can't have affordable living. That's injustice. So in verse 7, what he's saying is, when you share your food, when you share your homes, when you share your clothes, you are bringing justice and these necessary resources where there is injustice. Because the people that need food, homes, and clothes can't hear or eat or live under your hallelujahs in your empty religious rituals. The love of God is working in you when love of neighbor is flowing out of you. Don't fast to get something just for you. Fast so that it forms you and transforms you to go and be a light to others. That's why Jesus says, when you fast, when you give, when you pray, there's something part and parcel of being a person that is formed by these things. These are the tools that we've read about and talked about. He expects you to pick up the tools, but he teaches us to use them in the right way and not get focused on the bouncy balls and the airheads and the dum-dums because he wants us to focus on what matters most. That's why Lent causes us to refocus. It invites us to give, pray, and fast. You may have a sense of what giving is about. You have a sense of what praying is about. We talk about it all the time in this church. But what of fasting? Let me tell you what is fasting. In short, it's to disengage from something in order to more fully engage with God. Fasting, as Richard Foster says, is the voluntary denial of an otherwise normal function, like eating, for the sake of intense spiritual activity. There are people that I love that um, grew up in a Catholic and are still in a Catholic tradition where Lent is um, just like part and parcel. And it's, uh, it's, it's, they're so good at, at doing this. And this person will always say, yep, I'm giving up chocolate again. And one year I had the courage to say, why? 
And they say, because it's Lent. But why? Because I love chocolate. And I think I want to try to do it. Do you? Nah, I eat chocolate by week two. So I just said, okay, is that giving up an otherwise normal function, eating chocolate, so that you might put on some kind of practice or awareness or conscious contact with God? She was doing a great job half fasting. But the idea is to disengage in order to more fully engage with God. If fasting seems strange to you or new to you, I would encourage you to try some way, maybe it's just a meal on one day, and see what it does to refocus you and wake you up to your need for God by recognizing your need for a burrito on Friday at lunch. If fasting food is not something that's healthy or possible for you, what social media or TV media or, for me, sports radio in the morning media might need to be put off so that I can refocus my attention more fully to God? In our church, we like to talk about spiritual disciplines like shoes. These are some shoes that I wear maybe once a week. Fasting might be your shiny black dress shoes that you wear twice a year. If you put it on and it feels super uncomfortable, you have to ask yourself, is this some discomfort that I need to lean into and break in? Or do I need to give these shoes to the clothes closet? You catch my drift? But sometimes spiritual disciplines like prayer Those are your everyday, worn-in, busted-up vans. And you just got to be more intentional this season of Lent, working and walking in those in a way that helps you refocus. Not checks a box, but why we give, pray, and fast and walk in these shoes is not to twist God's arm, not to get what's already given like we've talked about, but what? to put ourselves in a position to be acted upon by God. You do what you can't, excuse me, you do what you can, not eat, chill on Twitter. I spent so much time on Twitter this week, it's crazy. Try fasting, try praying in a different way. You do what you can, and what? You know the rest. So that God can do what you can't. Form you, send you, grow you. I've been in a spiritual funk. Lent is for you. The rest of the church calendar is about Jesus and teaching you that story. Lent is for you. Dust off the junk and try out these time-tested tools. Not to get God to spit out that cosmic vending machine, but so that he might transform you and grow you. So finally, how might we fast and give and pray? You can give your stuff, your time, your money if you haven't regularly. Can I talk to you about something I never talk about, money? It's taken like the finance team and the elders telling me, like, you never talk about money except when we're buying shoes for kids or doing stuff for The Rock. And finally, Bud was like, dude, we are still operating at a $500 deficit every month. And I want you to know that it's hard to talk about money because it's hard to steward and manage money. (laughs) 
It's hard to get it and keep it and spend it when eggs are $400 at Aldi. So I want to encourage you this. If you grew up in a church that they said tithe, 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 you better tithe, you better tithe. Tithe is an Old Testament principle of 10%. And you say, a what now? No way. What if Lent, the 40 days not counting Sundays, is a time where you say, I can't do 10, but could I do the New Testament version in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 that God, is there a number that you can put on my heart? That I can disengage from some of the stuff I spend so that I might more fully engage and spend and give to this church or to the needs and poor in our neighborhood. I want you to know that our church practices what we preach and what we're asking. And we actually give away, if you count our three kingdom partners in the border of Texas and Mexico, in uh, working with refugees in Europe, and then in Russia and Central Asia. If you add that, plus our benevolence fund, which is for people that are in need within our community and without, and when you factor in what we give to The Rock, we give 15 to 20% beyond our own church every year. We try to practice what we preach as a church. We give to another church network we give beyond ourselves because we realize that if we're not going to give sacrificially beyond ourselves, how can we look you in the eye and ask the same? Can I tell you that when I started working at a church, I was finishing grad school. Amy had just started her career. We were barely making ends meet, and I worked for a church, and I never gave regularly. I would give compulsory once in a while when I really felt bad and that our business administrator at our church knew that I wasn't giving. And finally, we got to a point after a financial kind of like wake-up call and crisis where I just looked at Amy and I said, I really feel like we just got to like just do it. She said, I think so too. And what we did was we say, let's try and give X And we said, maybe it would help us if that's like the first thing we give before we even pay rent. As a kind of symbol or an offering to God to say, okay, we're going to do this first, trusting that we'll make it to the end. Not that you'll give us another check in the mail that perfectly matches what we just gave. Like it's a magic trick. We just said, I feel weird about working for a church. And I feel weird about saying, Jesus, I give you my life but I can't give you $100. And Amy and I, early in our marriage, said, what if we just made it a discipline and just never stopped? Because it's just a thing we do. Not to check a religious box, but to remember that we give because God has given to us. So I'm encouraging you, if you have stuff, give your stuff. If you have your time, Give your time. We're going to talk about these signs. If you have money and you're not giving regularly, don't worry. I don't know who gives. I don't know how much. I'm asking you disciple to disciple. Try this out in your discipleship. Maybe this 40 days of Lent for you is an opportunity to say, okay, God, I'm going to try with this number here. It may not be 10%, but let's try with 1% or 0.1%. Try it out. See what happens. Pray. We have prayer guides on our website. Try a five-minute timer of stillness. Intercede for those that know that they need God's work. Take on a discipline of prayer. 
fast food media mindsets, the kinds of things that we were talking about. But ultimately remember that these tools are given to you not to earn God's love, you're already loved. Not to earn God's favor, he already is wild about you. But to be formed in such a way that brings transformation to you and flourishing to our neighbors so that we might be a people following Jesus together for God's kingdom in our neighborhood and that we might be focused on what matters most, Jesus and his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Amen and amen. May your lives be marked by compassion and generosity, sharing what you've been given with those in need storing up your treasure in heaven instead of here on earth. May your giving be done in such a way that the Father who sees you blesses you, for what you give will be multiplied in his hands. May your praying be done in such a way that the Father who sees you answers you, for what we pray will be heard in his tender mercy. May your fasting be done in such a way that the Father who sees you fills you, for what we fast will be replaced at the feast of his table when the kingdom of God comes in fullness. May the blessing of God who sees, hears, and fills encourage and strengthen you in every good word and deed until we meet again. Go in peace.